You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bo's Nose Show. I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where it's another hot day in the Pacific Northwest. At least Pacific Northwest people think it's hot because it's actually breaking 90 a little bit. Of course, the relative humidity is about 30%, so everyone in the southeast is laughing at us uh, as we're all wilting in in the 90-degree temperatures. And, and, you know, it didn't seem like that long ago where we regularly broke 100 degrees during the summer here in the Eugene uh, Springfield area in Lane County, uh, end of the Willamette Valley. And I haven't seen those triple digits in quite a while. In fact, it seems like it's pretty rare that we're even breaking into the 90s. Uh, I guess it's all this global warming. Um, But it seems like not too long ago um, we we were seeing some pretty heavy heat heat spells, and I just haven't seen that in the last couple summers. But we got so much to talk about here on the Bose Nose Show, but as always, I would rather talk about whatever you want to talk about. So just give us a call, 646-721-9887, and just remember to press 1, because that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on a conversation, because we have folks that call just to listen. Um, so remember, that's 646-721-9887, and just press 1, and that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation here on the Bose Nose Show. So interesting times um, here in the United States of America, Oregon, and um, just the, uh, you know, Lane County, the entire country, between uh, the COVID-19 you know, that started this year, and then the uh, uh, George Floyd uh, issues uh, that started the, the, the protest, and that have led to some uh, rioting in, in our community now and then. Uh, yeah, I, I first want to say something that I said yesterday in our board meeting. I want to say what a great job the local group Black Unity has been doing organizing and running their protests. They um, have been exercising what I consider good civil disobedience, and they, uh, they seem to understand, you know, what that means and what peaceful protest and exercising your First Amendment rights to assembly and free speech and redress of government are all about. Uh, they're doing it right. And I just want to acknowledge that first, um, that they've organized multiple uh, 
gatherings, marches all around the community, whether Bethel or over in Springfield, and not a single one of them has gotten out of hand. Um, what happens though, it seems like late at night, there's a group that wants to co-opt these protests and, and go beyond what the folks at the Black Unity um, organizers want to do. And you know, that's what happened that, that first weekend uh, that got out of hand uh, there at 7th and Washington. It's what's happened with the uh, protests at the jail that have gotten out of hand late at night. And then this last weekend, it happened again. But this last weekend was a little different. In, you know, there was a counter protest. And I just want to say the idiot that pulled out his gun and shot off blanks is an idiot. You know, that could have been such a triggering event and caused all sorts of mayhem. Um, and, I, I, and I just don't know why anyone would think that that was the right thing to do. Um, you know, firearms have, have, you know, one purpose, which is to take a life. And, you know, I've always been taught, you know, you don't ever discharge that firearm unless you're intent to destroy something. You don't point at anything you don't want to destroy, and, and you don't discharge it unless you're intending to destroy that. So, um, it's, you know, going to be interesting to see how this works out. This weekend, besides having the counter protests, when the counter protesters actually left and cleared out, the protests continued. And they actually went and damaged several local businesses. But it wasn't just kind of random like they did at 7th and Washington, where it was just happened to be the businesses nearby. They chose specific businesses to damage. And it was in that choice, I think, that was truly insidious and something that we just cannot tolerate in our community. One of the things they did was they chose to walk past multiple businesses between these three businesses they chose to, 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 to damage. But in particular, they walked blocks between you know, where the Wells Fargo Bank and the, the market um, there that they went after, blocks down Franklin past multiple businesses, including, you know, the McDonald's across the street and all sorts of, you know, national chains that, you know, owned by big corporations and everything else, specifically to go after Elkhorn Brewery. And the only reason they could have picked that is because they knew that the owner had spoken out about the lawlessness in downtown Eugene and how there needed to be better control of that lawlessness. Which means they were there basically in response to him exercising his free speech and then there to punish and intimidate him. You know, my, my guess is they, they think that if they keep damaging his building or doing things like that, that group of, of U of O students did where they came in the building and terrorized his customers, that they're gonna silence him. And we should not tolerate that as a community. It's bullying. 
and it harkens back to some of our worst moments in history. Think of the times when, you know, that sort of intimidation by a mob has been used to try and intimidate and silence people speaking out for their own rights. And that's all Stephen Sheehan was doing, was speaking out for his right to be able to operate a business without having it vandalized all the time. You just have to wonder, you know, how many other incidences in history have you seen that? Where they've used mob violence, basically, to intimidate somebody into silence. I think it kind of harkens back to some of our history in, our, in, in the South in this country, harkens back to some of the history in Germany. It's something we should not tolerate. And every elected leader and every community leader in this community of Lane County Eugene and Springfield should be speaking out and saying, we will not tolerate the intimidation of somebody for exercising their free speech rights. Because the speech that should be most protected is that unpopular speech. And I just can't understand, you know, why that has not created a huge problem. Just imagine if this was changed around a little bit. Imagine if it was the business associated with one of the organizers from Black Unity, and it was those counter-protesters that damaged it. There would be calls for hate crimes investigations, for throwing people into prison. It would be, you know, People would be, you know, incensed at that attempt to bully in silence. Why is it different? Why was this okay? Why isn't people outraged? I, I just, I don't understand. Because it was purely intimidation and an attempt to silence and punishment for speaking out. And, and it should never be allowed to go by without question in our community. And people need to speak out about it. So I ask you, the folks that are listening to the Bose Nose Show, call your elected officials, call your city councilors, your your county commissioners, your mayors, ask them if they will come out and publicly denounce the bullying and intimidation that went on at Elkhorn Brewery last Saturday night. I mean, poor Mr. Sheehan was on vacation with his two young sons on a, you know, kind of a once in a lifetime event for his sons to go camping. Had to return home from that. I mean, just, it's, you know, I can't fathom what it would have, was like for him. And just in general, how does damaging property advance your cause? Does it make people want to support reforms in our public safety system? 
in our court systems, in our prison systems. You know, all it does is 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 drown out the message, the good message that some of the folks at Black Unity were trying to get across. And I and I I'm happy to hear some folks out of the Black Unity movement denounce the property damage and violence and the attempt to co-opt their movement. You're even seeing that in Portland now, where the folks are getting tired of the the, the nightly attempts at trying to burn down a federal courthouse, which fascinates me in some ways. You know, it would, you know, the, the whole double thing about, you know, we don't want federal, you know, law enforcement there protecting federal property, uh, but it was okay to ask for federal law enforcement to come in when the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge was being occupied. Um, and then, you know, the other time it's okay for federal uh, interference in local um, governance, uh, you know, it was called for and regularly done during the Obama administration that the FBI and the Justice Department were going to come in and run local police departments who apparently were, you know, not meeting their standards. And there was constant calls from all sorts of figures for federal intervention in local police departments. Now we just have federal police just trying to protect federal property and for some reason that's wrong. Um, just amazes me, which I could get off on a whole nother subject of, of uh, Attorney General Barr's um, testimony before Congress yesterday, but we'll, I, we can digress on that at another time. I wanna stay a little bit more local here. So, you know, Anyone have any reactions or want to challenge me about my reaction to the the attempted intimidation of uh, the owner of Elkhorn Brewery this last weekend? Give me a call here on the Bose Nose Show, 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1 so that we know you want to talk um, because we do get multiple people calling just to listen. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit because on top of all the happenings with uh, local stuff and uh, yeah, and I, I was just, it's amazing. You get a little text here and there from your producer to remind me that, yeah, they, they did that. She finally got the Elkhorn brewery uh, image up there, what they did to his business. And it's just, it's nothing but intimidation. If that was a business owned by a minority in this community, there would be absolute outrage, particularly if that minority person was part of some of these recent protests. So, um, but moving on, we're gonna talk a little bit about homelessness because we had um, what was billed to the commissioners and the city councilors was gonna be update on the tax recommendations. Now, if you remember the TAC report, and TAC was the consulting firm uh, initials uh, that, that did that report out of Boston, a nationally recognized consultant in, in looking at homeless uh, systems and recommending changes to them to make them more efficient and more productive. Um, the TAC report uh, had a bunch of short 
term and, and you know, prioritize recommendations under four levels. And the first 22 pages of the report back from uh, our staff was basically an update on where we are on those priority goals. Um, so sort of on the surface looks like, oh, we're just going to, we're continuing to work and executing that, those recommendations. But somewhere along the line, a decision was made that the recommendations, because they're based on the point in time count, that is a nationally recognized um, method of counting your homeless population, which everybody acknowledges under counts, because it's a one day count and sometimes people just don't, either don't wanna be counted or whatever else. But it's a snapshot. And, and the estimates of the undercount for those counts is anywhere from 20 to 25 percent to as much as 200 percent undercount. So you might, instead of the 1365, there could have been 1,700, I mean, 2,730 um, single adults homeless in our, in our community. It also doesn't count youth and a few other things. Um, but that's you know, that's basically what the recommendations were built around because the, the attempt was, you know, what's going to take to deal with this single adult homeless population? And that's specifically what the recommendations were for. And based on that as recommendations, um, you know, a lot of it was about system improvements and improving efficiency and how we move people through the system. But in addition, they wanted us to build a 75-bed emergency shelter and an additional 350 beds of permanent supportive housing, which is something I really got behind because the permanent supportive housing part where you have that intensive case management that goes with getting a bed is really about how you permanently cure homelessness for people. You know, just putting them up in a tent somewhere is not necessarily helping them with why they're homeless in the first place. It might keep them alive, but it doesn't deal with the underlying issues and, and reasons why they might be homeless. So that TAC recommendations were heavily weighted. We are still live. Apparently, Jay is frozen in time. Jay, are you still there? I'm here. And not a very good one, by the way. Uh, You are not a very good statue, but you are back. You're actually moving now, so... Good, good. So where did I where did I part? <laughs> where did I freeze up and become a statue? Um, so I, I guess we were talking about you know the TAC report and how it focused so heavily on those permanent supportive housing beds and how important that was to me because they're a, a, a really important way of, of not just you know, keeping somebody alive and enabling their their homeless lifestyle, it's about making them not homeless permanently. 
you know, and dealing with why they're homeless, helping them get into a situation where they can live, whether, you know, ultimately they, they get back to society and get a job and are paying rent, taxes, and all that good stuff, or if they just move into a group home with the proper support that keeps them from falling off the, the edge of, of our system and back into homelessness. Um, that's what that permanent supportive housing supports, is that long-term permanent cure and taking people permanently out of the system and, and, and homeless, you know, being chronically homeless. Well, apparently that using that point time count wasn't good enough. And there was some decision made that, that, you know, we just couldn't accept that, that recommendation from a national consultant that we were going to, to, go to our local database that we keep, uh, which, you know, we have a database that anytime somebody touches the homeless uh, services system, they get entered into the system. So we can kind of keep track of, of people and how much they're using stuff. And um, that we keep a, um, a, you know, homeless uh, by name list, they call it. And in that homeless by name list, there's 9,679 unduplicated people. That's kind of a big jump from 1,365 to 9,079 um, and is way beyond any of the estimates of the undercount caused by the point in time. Now, mind you, and I asked this question, got it confirmed last night, you can be on that list of the 900 9,679 unduplicated people by asking for services one time. Not actually getting the service, but asking for access to a service. Once, a single day, one time, you're part of that unduplicated people list. So I kind of wonder, and I, I asked this, this information, I'm hoping to get it sometime in, in the near future, of those 9,000 people, how many were the one-time, one-day requests that never really got the services? And maybe, maybe, how many of them were just got the service for one night and then got back out of the system? Because you can imagine there are people, you know, for, you know, leaving a domestic abuse situation or whatever that might need an emergency housing for one night before they finally hook up with friends or get some other situation worked out or get, you know, family takes them in, um, that can happen. But we're now considering those 9,000 basically to be year-round homeless people to some degree. Um, and my, my question sort of is, is of those 9,679, how many access, you know, homeless services for more than half the year. You know, how about just for a quarter of the year or even 30 days? Um, so I just, it's be interesting to see those statistics, but based on those, they completely changed what we are, you know, proposing to do over the next five years and, and brought those recommendations forward, kind of fait accompli they didn't ask us to approve them. They just presented what they're, they're planning. 
um, to these two elected bodies. So I, I asked um, Robin to get a couple slides ready. So if you're watching Facebook Live, you'll be able to see these two slides because they were presented to us last night. The first one was the original TAC recommendations. What that is is what we were supposed to add to the system to basically get us, you know, there's, I don't like using the term functional zero because the definition of that is, is varies, but just to make homelessness for single adults rare, infrequent, and brief. You know, so that they're getting into the, into the system and getting help and getting out of the system. And to do that, we needed to, to add 189, almost 200 move-on vouchers. We needed to add uh, capacity for 250 more people to be rapidly rehoused, which is kind of keeping them from being homeless in the first place for any length of time, to get them right back into housing as they present becoming homeless. And then we needed the 75-bed shelter and navigation center to connect people with services and provide that emergency wet, wet bed, low barrier, you know, shelter to keep people from dying. Because if we were doing the other things recommendation, we shouldn't have a whole bunch of people on the street. 75 should be enough. No alternative shelter. And by alternative, they mean things like Conestoga huts and safe sleeping camps and, and you know, the dust to dawn tents and all that good good stuff that doesn't qualify as shelter under the HUD definition of what they consider shelter, they would still be considered unsheltered in that alternative shelter. And then 350 permanent supportive housing beds in addition to the, you know, hundreds of beds we already have in our community, you know, of which we've got about 90 some coming online here this year um, of that target 350. So that was the original recommendation. And, you know, it's not cheap, but we were, we were working at getting it taken care of slice by slice. And in fact, we even managed to, to leverage some of our COVID emergency money to purchase a facility to use for temporary um, isolation of homeless and other folks that couldn't find places to isolate at the old veterans clinic on River Avenue up there near Beltline, Santa Clara and River Road, Santa Clara area, um, that done with will be able to use that 75 bed emergency shelter navigation center. Um, so, you know, we kind of got tick that one off, tick off you know, 100 or so um, permanent supportive housing units that are now in the pipeline. Um, we're, we're, we're working towards that, we're working towards those goals. But go to the next slide there, Robin. Now based on changing the data and going to this data where one attempt to access puts you on the list, we're now calling for not 75 bed emergency shelter, a 475 bed emergency shelter. We're not calling for zero alternative beds. We're calling for 373, over 800 emergency shelter beds suddenly. In addition to our current capacities. 
This is in addition to the mission, in addition to our current, you know, dust to dawn facilities. In the permanent supportive housing, they only upped the number by six to 356. So basically, you know, getting to focus on emergency shelter instead of the permanent, which, you know, might keep people alive. Not sure if we need that high of a capacity. If we were improving our system and our throughput and had more permanent supportive housing on the tail end, you know, the TAC report says we really don't need that many beds. But we now have, you know, local folks basically second-guessing the TAC report, switching the database, and making this recommendation. Now, mind you, to execute this, not the capital money, I'm not talking about how much it's going to cost to build it, to actually run these facilities that they're calling for, these, these shelters and, and alternative shelters, is going to be in the $18 million a year range, maybe as much as $24 million. Operational costs only. So think about that. If you were to put that as a property tax levy, it would take about maybe one or two dollars. I'd have to go back and do the calculations um, for the entire county. If it's the city of Eugene, it's even higher. But it's just, it's boggling. And, and what was amazing to me was I was the only person out of those elected officials that was questioning the shift to this new database and the focus on emergency shelter versus permanent. And then, you know, Councilor Zelenka is like, rah, this is great. We, we should put a levy out. He was all ready to go to the tax side. You know, I'd, I'd sure like to have that, you know, this whole thing proofed a little bit and, and question the data, question the recommendations before I'm going to jump out and ask people to, to tax themselves for this. Not to mention, you know, we're talking about double-digit unemployment. Those that are employed have had their hours cut and wages cut. And, you know, we don't see an end in sight for that right now. And, yes, there may be a lot more homeless people because of COVID. But the one thing I didn't hear discussed at all last night, other than Commissioner Farr made reference to this, because it's really hard to get two-minute snippets to try and speak in this uh, joint elected officials uh, kind of format. Um, nobody is talking about why is housing so hard to get and unaffordable in Lane County? Why does it cost so much? Why is there so little of it? Because 
they want to focus on compact urban development. Newsflash, COVID-19, people don't want to live on top of each other anymore. People are moving out of New York City and going to the suburbs. It's no longer a valid model. We need to get the urban reserves done and look at, do we have enough land, billable land in Eugene and stop monkeying with the system so we don't. You know, all these people so concerned about evictions and homelessness and all that stuff, build more housing. Build more housing, more front doors, more housing, lowers the cost, makes it more available. People don't end up balanced on the edge and can stay in their housing. You know, it just, it, it's, it, it's amazing to me how they're willing to go straight to, we got to tax people. Big government solution to homelessness. Let's open up land for housing and let the market lower the cost of housing to start with. So at least that portion of the homeless situation that's due to economics might be cured. And then we can go after the portion of the homeless problem that's due to things like domestic abuse, mental health, and addiction, and other causes that put people in that that situation. Yeah, it just... I, it was it was an amazing meeting last night, you know, to to watch just as people, you know, were, oh, isn't that wonderful? And, and you know, no one questions sometimes how these things are defined. You know, one night, one attempt to access, you're on that nine thousand person list. I mean, it's kind of like when people bring up some of the school system quote homeless student counts. That's a completely separate way of counting homeless than HUD counts them. That's under the McKinney-Bento Act, um, which you know requires the Department of Education to count student homelessness completely different than counting it the way they count uh, homelessness for adults. It gives outrageously large numbers, you know, because of the way they count it. So, but that, you know, I, I digress somewhat. You know, even in, in presenting some of these numbers, they love to do things like talk about how many of these people are disabled and how many are veterans. And I asked the question the other day, do you verify disabilities and do you verify veteran status or is that self-reported? And the answer was no, it's self-reported. So when you start seeing some of these, these you know, 9,000 uneducated people and so many, you know, number of them are, are disabled and so many are veterans. That's probably a lot bigger number than it really is. You know, you know, whether they have a, you know, self-reported disability and a self-reported veteran status, um, you know, it's been pretty well studied that quite often people that claim they're veterans aren't. Um, and, and there's been a lot of uh, stolen honor in, in in some of the ways people, you know, self-report that status really should be verified before they're counted as that. 
But, you know, that, that was kind of my part of my day yesterday. In addition to that, we talked COVID-19 at the Board of Commissioners meeting, and we can go on with that, but I'm going to pause and take a breath and remind folks that I want, I'd rather talk about what you want to talk about on the Bo's Nose Show. And so you can give me a call, 646-721-9887. If you press 1, that lets me know you want to get in on the conversation and uh, talk on the air. You know, and you can have a question, you can have a comment, um, you know, you can have a, you know, criticism of something I said, you know, challenge me, challenge my data. Um, but, you know, let's have a conversation. That that makes for great radio uh, and great um, internet, better than just listening to me all the time. But if you don't want to call me at 646-721-9887 and press one, so Robin, my call screener, producer extraordinaire knows you want to get on our conversation. We'll move on to a little bit of COVID-19 update here in Lane County, especially seeing our governor came out with another set of metrics for schools to reopen. I mean, first she starts them down the path of putting plans together to submit to county health departments for approval. And then they come out the, the OHA came out with some metrics that the schools had to meet. And then the governor comes out with new metrics on top of that, which frankly are, you know, nearly impossible to meet for some areas. But what's interesting is that um, the statewide metric she has of uh, less than 5% testing positive in, in the test, um, testing being done is not being met. The statewide metrics want to be met. If you go to a local metric that's required, we are almost meeting that now in Lane County, at least over the last week. We're almost down to a level that she was asking for, that 10 cases per um, 100,000. So we're close. You know, keep up the good work, citizens. Make sure you're, you're uh, um, you know, being careful, your social distancing. Yes, I support wearing a mask um, in, in areas where you can't social distance and indoors. Uh, you know, even if you're out, outdoors and you can't social distance, you should have a mask on if you're closer than six feet to another person. Um, it's just polite. Keep your germs to yourself. Stay home if you're sick. We're, we're doing amazingly well here in Lane County. And I want to talk a little bit about just how well we're doing and just how well Oregon's doing. I mean, if you listen to the governor over the last couple of weeks, you'd think we were, you know, people were falling over left and right from COVID and our hospitals were cramped. And that's not the case. In fact, you know, when you look at nationwide, and there's a, you know, really good um, website that I like called Statista. That's S-T-A-T-I-S-T-A. -T -T -A. And they've got some uh, charts up on their site. Uh, one is the rate of coronavirus cases in the United States by state. Per 100,000 people. So 
it's not just how many cases are in your state, it's how many cases per 100,000. And when you start looking at that, you, you see there's some states that um, you know, are, are looking pretty sad. You know, Louisiana, Arizona, New York, Florida, New Jersey, you know, all are over 2,000 cases per 100,000. But you gotta scroll down and scroll down and scroll down and seventh from the bottom, and mind you, this is including Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia and all that in this list. Seventh from the bottom is Oregon at 413 cases per 100,000. So that's really pretty amazing, um, you know, difference, you know, and, and just there are only seven other, six other states that have a lower case per 100,000, one of which is Hawaii, which is they've been able to isolate themselves as an island, more or less. Um, if you look at the same site, they have, a, have the same statistics up in deaths per 100,000 in each state. And again, Oregon is one of the lowest states in our country at seven deaths per 100,000. Pretty amazing. Um, over the whole pandemic. Lane County is lower than the statewide averages in both those statistics, much lower. So we're, we're in a state that's doing well in a county that's doing well. So pretty, pretty amazing. I'm going to jump in here for just a second. Uh, Joe was going to ask a question of you, and we lost him. So, Joe, if you want to give us a call back, we'll put you right through. Yeah, I saw that. I was just getting ready to go to them, too. <laughs> I wanted to finish my thought about those two charts. Um, but it's just, you know, really, you know, we live in one of the safest states in the country. And if you're in Lane County here listening to the Bozno show, you live in one of the safest counties in one of the safest states in the country. And you should be proud of the work our public health department's done to make it happen that way. We've, we're up to about 160 some contact tracers that have been trained and are up and running and are working seven days a week to make sure that we, we, when a new case crops up, we're immediately in contact with that person, interview them, figure out where they've been over the last several you know, days and weeks and who they've been in close contact with and contact those people and get them to isolate. Um, that system's working here. And we're just doing an amazing job. And in fact, um, I would recommend anybody to go to the Lane County website. And then up at the top of our website, there's a little banner you know, that is our COVID-19 banner. And that will take you to, I'm uh, having trouble getting to it. Um, that'll take you to our site on COVID-19. Joy, joy, joy. I love it when things don't work on me. <laughs> 
but it'll take you to our site on COVID-19. But one of the things that's interesting on that site is there's a statewide map by county. And if you look at the cases per 10,000 is that map. You know, you can just multiply by 10 for 100,000. But the statewide cases average is 41 and a half cases per 10,000. Lane County's 12.3 cases per 10,000. So when you think about where the state was down at the seventh lowest, Lane County is basically 25% of that case rate. Kind of down there where Hawaii is. And we're not an island. I just want to say kudos to our public health staff. They've done an incredible job at managing this event. And they do it through something called an incident command system, which was something firefight, wildland firefighters developed over the years to manage various fires and be able to expand and contract based on the size of the incident they're managing. It's been picked up and is now uh, required uh, by FEMA and, and nationally uh, for folks to follow those systems because they're so effective in how they manage an incident. And you can use an ICS setup to manage something as simple as a flat tire on a vehicle. <laughs> if you wanted to point yourself the incident commander and do all the various things that, that, that happen in an incident command structure. But it's really an effective way of managing an emergency. Part of it is, you know, you have different departments, people have roles to play, you know, everything gets, you know, people that, that come into the incident command structure get checked in through one department so you know how many people are involved so you don't, you know, leave somebody out in the woods if you're fighting a wildfire. You know, you understand accounting-wise how much that incident's costing you. Um, and you have a planning section that's daily assess, reassessing the situation and doing daily briefings with, with everybody and setting goals for the next day and, and uh, to, you know, continuously updating the plan to address the emergency that and incident that the system was set up for. And our public health people have gotten really good at running an ICS structure. You, they, they, they go into it on a regular basis, maybe not as big and as heavy as COVID-19 is required, they got, got pretty heavy into it when that um, meningitis outbreak at U of O back in 2015. Um, they stood it up for the, that uh, minor measles outbreak. Uh, they do it regularly uh, as part of you know, their public health response and being ready for a communicable disease outbreak. And uh, COVID-19 is, is definitely stressing that system but they've stepped up and responded, expanded. You know, they actually stood up that that ICS system shortly after the first case was reported in the United States. You know, we've been in this instant command system since early February. You know, we hadn't had any cases here in Lane County. We were already managing the outbreak. And with that, you know, we've been able to really 
do some pretty amazing things. Um, got a report today from uh, that they, they do this weekly report statewide as to how each county is doing on some various metrics. And, um, you know, Lane County just seems to constantly outshine a lot of places. You know, um, things they'd like to track is um, percentage of emergency department visits for COVID-like illnesses have to stay below one and a half percent. Trend in the percent of tests that are positive in the last seven days. You know, that's that 5% number that the state's trying to stay below. Um, percent increase in new cases over the last seven days. They want that to be trending down, not up. Um, percent of cases not traced to a known source in the last seven days. That's really important because that's really talking about sporadic cases. Those cases that show up in our county where we don't know the source. Um, and that's supposed to be below 30%. Statewide right now, it's at 46%. Um, trend in hospitalization is supposed to be heading down, you know, downward trend. And then they want to know whether, you know, we were able to contact new cases within 24 hours. This is our contract tracing thing. The goal is 95% or higher. So uh, statewide, that's sitting at 84%. If you jump down to Lane County, you know, that first metric about emergency room visits, we're at a half percent where the goal is one and a half percent. On the trend in percent of tests that are positive, um, we're in a slight uptrend right now. At, at you know, but not not that heavy, 0.7 percent. We're almost on the downtrend. Um, Percent increase in cases in the last seven days, we're down 40%. So we're going good there. Percent of cases not traced to a known source, we're at right at that 30% goal. Um, with trend in hospitalizations at the time of this report, it's going is is no trend. We actually went up a little bit yet today. This this is for the week week that ended um, this weekend. And our contact tracing is at 98% in 24 hours. Pretty pretty darn close to that 100% number. We've been at 100% quite a few of these weeks. So our public health staff's just doing an amazing job. And, you know, as far as COVID-19 goes, if you're in Lane County, you should feel really good. There's a lot of counties that have been doing pretty amazingly. Uh, Douglas County, doing a great job. You know, Coos County is doing a good job. You know, so it's just, you know, if you're, if you're Southwest Oregon in general seems to be doing pretty well. So um, keep up the good work, folks, because it's not just the contact tracing. It's just preventing the spread in the first place to get those downward trends and all that stuff. That's about people not doing stupid things. <laughs> Don't have the, the house party. You know, don't have the contest to see who can get COVID first, like some stupid college students were doing at one point. You know, inviting somebody to a party that had tested positive and then having a, a, a raffle 
or you know where whoever gets COVID first gets the pot. I, I, yeah. Stupid. Are those the same people that did the Tide Pods contest? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Probably because her mother told them to wash their mouth out with soap, and that's the modern way of doing it. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing what people will do to get a moment of Internet fame. Uh, yes, I've seen some pretty crazy videos. And a lot of it involves, here, hon, hold my beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, you know, we still have about five minutes left in the Bose No Show. Joe, if you want to call back, we'll we'll get to you right away. Um, and, of course, because it is, uh, you know, Internet radio, we're not on a fixed format. I can go past the hour if I have to. If I get somebody that calls in late and we have a really good conversation going. So give us a call here, 646-721-9887. Just press 1. That lets us know you want to get on the conversation. Again, 646-721-9887. Just press 1. And, uh, you know, we've thrown a lot out there, everything from, you know, the the riots and the intimidation going on at Elkhorn Brewery to the data switch and sudden expansion in our um, homeless programs that's being projected now and the um, cost of that and the possible tax increases that will come with that cost. Uh, We talked about COVID-19 and how well we're doing here in our community. Um, We could talk about all sorts of things. Kind of interesting, uh, some of the stuh going on with the hydro hydroxy uh, um, and, and the controversy over the president and all that because it you know i it wasn't but a week or so ago I saw a study that came out of the the, the Ford um, uh, hospital in Detroit um, where they actually did a study of people that got the, the drug versus people that didn't, and it decreased the death rate significantly and improved the length of stay in the hospital um, without the complications that were con- that were concerning. Yet then I saw a study out of Brazil that was flipped the other way around. So, um, but it just amazes me now that social media folks are medical experts and are banning uh, anyone that says. Um, that it would be helpful. Um, any any videos that say it would be helpful um, kind of seems like censorship a little bit there. Um, no more than some of the reporting I saw this morning about um, the Attorney General's appearance before the House um, committee there yesterday because um, I watched a little bit of it live and uh, particularly when he was being questioned about vote by mail. Uh, which is interesting because, you know, we've had vote by mail here in Oregon for such a long time. Um, and he was being questioned by um, uh, the chair, uh, Nadler, there um, about, you know, what, why he felt vote by mail. You know, did he think it was um, could have fraud and, and problems? And he said, yes, I believe it is subject to possible fraud and does have problems. And, and uh, the chair asked him, you know, 
what do you mean? Look at New York has two congressional races right now. They have not been able to um, finalize the elections on because they can't figure out which were the valid ballots because they had a problem. They were, they did something about postmarks there. And, and apparently um, the post office doesn't always clearly stamp a postmark that has the date visible and all that. And did somebody get a postmark in time or not? And there's a huge controversy about counting ballots there in those two congressional districts to where they haven't finalized the races. Now, of course, in Oregon, you have to have your ballot in by the eight o'clock on election day or it doesn't count. And it's your responsibility to get it there, not the post office's. Postmarks don't count. Um, and yeah, with that kind of system that you wouldn't have that big of a problem. But they also, you know, I saw the ABC News report on that specific item, and they basically showed Nadler kind of asking the question and said, Attorney General Barr really didn't have any specific examples. It's like, what? I heard him talk about two specific congressional districts in New York. It's like, holy moly, you want to talk about bias reporting by omission. <clears throat> that was a perfect case. So... It just, yeah, kind of amazing the the way um, watching something live, and this is no different than being in one of my board meetings and then reading about how it happened in the newspaper can be two completely separate things, including, you know, and television news does it too. Part of it's they're so undermanned and so short resource, they do a poor job. Part of it is an intent slant. And that happens with some media and it goes both ways. I've seen, you know, the same thing happen with um, the Washington times and, and some other news outlets go in the other direction with news and, and misreporting. Uh, none of it's acceptable, but this particular case was in the other direction with ABC news. Um, pretty interesting watching that happen live and, and getting to witness that. But the one thing they don't talk about with vote by mail is the ability to intimidate somebody while they're voting. Sorry about that. Privacy. Yeah, I, I see 52 seconds left here, Robin, <laughs> on my end. Uh, it's called check your levels before queuing. Yeah. The one thing you have when you have polling place voting is you go in and you go by yourself into that voting booth. Your husband's not with you. Your boyfriend's not with you. No other family members there with you. They have no idea how you're voting. Vote by mail, though, how easy is it for a dominant person in their household to say, come on, let's all sit around the kitchen table and fill out our ballots. You will vote this way. That's the part of vote by mail no one ever talks about. Well, we're about out of time here on the Bo's Nose Show. I want to thank everybody for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of the Bose Nose Show. There won't be any board meeting in between, so who knows what we'll talk about. But thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Have a great week, guys. Mm-hmm.